You know, one of the things that destroyed our country was uh, racism, it was war, it was the pain and devastation that ultimately would lead to our civil war. It was the termites that ate away at the foundation of our country, the foundation of our morality. And yet God had put in place, years in advance, a defense of the freedom of Americans, the freedom of all people of all races, back in uh, 1730. A guy, named, a guy named Sewell Stewart was uh, a theology student, and he wrote in his diary, a little diary called The Selling of Joseph, and it began to be distributed through the United States even before we were a nation. And he argued from the story of Joseph why slavery was wrong. He says, slavery is unnatural. When God made the original creation, there was no slavery. Therefore, if we're trying to emulate his kingdom, we too should not support slavery. He also said that because mankind is made in God's image, to assign any value of selling a human being immediately demoralized or immediately is immoral in that you are devaluing the thing that God has esteemed. He looked at the very passage where Joseph is sold by his brothers. And he said, Joseph was no more their slave than he was theirs. They had no right to sell each other. And this became the undercurrent of the thinking that began to lead ultimately to the decision to fight a mighty battle to come against these termites that have eaten away at our republic. In fact, Abraham Lincoln had a challenge on his hand. One of his challenges was, and he quoted Jesus by saying, a house divided against itself cannot stand because he realized that our union, our nation, families had been ripped in half. And he had to figure out how to put the union back together again. He had to reunionize our, our families. He had to reunionize our country. He had to reunionize faith in God, faith in each other again after this bloody war. So how would he do it? Well, God has the same challenge. God is going to have to reunionize Jacob's family. After 22 years of hostility, 22 years of secrets and lies, he's going to have to reunionize them with him, reunionize them with each other and give them a sense that despite all the tragedy and terrible things that have happened, he still had an incredible future for them. And the same reunion he promises them is the same reunion he offers to us. God offers us three reunions, a reunion of faith, of family and a future to untangle us from the lies, to give us the promise of a new start and to show us how his hope can be mixed in with our grief to help us move forward into our future. Let's begin together. If you have your Bibles with you, we're going to look at the first of faith reunion in Genesis 46. So Israel, and remember Jacob's name has been Israel for many, 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 many years now. Well over 20, probably 30 or 40 at this point. He's 130 years old. So Israel took his journey, all that he had, he's heading back to Egypt. And he came to Beersheba. And he offered sacrifices to the God of his father, Isaac. Now notice, he doesn't offer sacrifices to his God. He offers it to his dad's God. Now this is fascinating to me that he would do this. Fascinating that the faith he has, somewhere in all the years of grief and all the years of turmoil, he's now putting his faith in dad's faith, not his own. And God is going to challenge him to have a faith reunion, to reconnect with God in a fresh way for this season. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night. Go back one slide. Oh, you're not synced up with me. Switch over to the PowerPoint. 
Then uh, God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. Is it working? It's not working. All right, go ahead and turn it off. Yeah, go ahead and turn it off or reboot it. And I'll just start. I'll go directly from the text. So God speaks to Israel in visions of the night and says, Jacob, Jacob. And he says, here I am. Now, this is fascinating to me. His name is Israel, but God is calling him Jacob. Did God forget his name? Of course not. So why would God, who gave him a new name, why would God call him Jacob, Jacob? And he responds to his old name. Here I am. Why is that? Because he needs to have a faith reunion. He's been living off his dad's faith. He thinks that he's sort of lost touch with God over the years. He's gone back to his old ways, the manipulating ways of Jacob. Jacob's name literally meant deceiver. He's gone back to those old ways. Now, if you remember, we're going to go to the next slide. Back in verse 30, chapter 32, God gave him a new name. Here's what it is. Now, when he saw that he did not prevail against him, this is the angel wrestling with him. Okay, next slide. What happens back in 32 is he touched the socket of his hip. And the socket of Jacob's hip was out of joint as he wrestled with him. And remember, the angel said, let me go as the day breaks. And, and Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. He said, well, what is your name? So, well, my name is Jacob. He said, well, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. And Jacob asked, saying, well, tell me your name, I pray. <laughs> he said, well, why do you ask about my name? And he blessed him there. And here in this, this battle between Jacob and the angel, he gets a brand new name. And that name is so significant because it means that God has a new plan for his life, a new destiny. And the same way God gave Israel a new name as followers of Christ, when we become his followers, when he becomes our forgiver and leader, we get a new name. All things have passed away. All things have become new. We are a new creature. We're given a new name to live out that new name and that new identity. Yet many times instead of living out that new identity in Christ and wanting to please him because of what he did for us, we go back to our old ways, our Jacob ways. Which is why, if we go back to the verse in Genesis 46, verse 3 to 4, he says, God, speaking to Jacob, Jacob, Jacob. And whenever you repeat a name twice, it's a sign of great emotional distress. Remember when Absalom died, David says, Absalom, Absalom, my son, my son, oh, that I would have died instead of you. And here God is saying, Jacob, Jacob, what happened to us? I want you to know that I want to have a reunion with you. So he said, I am the God, the God of your father. Yes, I'm the God of your father, but I want to be your God, Jacob. Do not fear to go down to Egypt. Now, I told your dad, Isaac, not to go to Egypt during that season. But this season, you going to Egypt is part of my plan. I will make of you a great nation there. Look what he says. I will make of you a great nation. I want to do something with you, with your faith, with your family. This isn't your grandpa's faith. This isn't your dad's faith. This is you and me faith. I want to reunionize myself with you, Israel. I will go down with you to Egypt. I will also surely bring you up again. And Joseph, who you've longed to see for many years, you will see him again. And he will put his hands on your eyes as you die. You will be there with your son who you love. God wants Jacob, 
who's already had several encounters with God in his life, to have a new, fresh, God-becoming-personal-in-my-life kind of connection with him. God wanted to adopt him. God adopted Jacob. He had a name of deceiver and nobody wanted him. And God chose to adopt him when no one else would. In fact, the name Israel actually is a Hebrew construction that has several little words embedded within it. If you have the slide, we'll put it up. If not, I'll just tell you about it. Israel is a Hebrew word. And part of the letters that make up Israel's name include El, which is God's name. So he says you prevailed or you wrestled with God. And he got a new name. So El, where we get Elohim, is actually built into Israel's new name. He's the El. Second part that's embedded in the, the name of, of uh, Jacob is the idea of a word Sar, which comes from the idea of an umbilical cord. Just sort of weird. It's God saying, well, I adopted you, tapped onto an umbilical cord with you. Another part of the name Israel is that you will rule on my behalf. That I will, I will show myself through you, my rulership through you, my love through you, my governorship through you. That you will be my representative as this new identity put me on display. This little phrase about the umbilical cord comes from the idea of adoption. Well, way back in the book of Ezekiel, God will speak about how he wants to adopt you and me, adopt Israel and give him a new name. It says in Ezekiel chapter 16, these words, Your birth and your nativity are from the land of Canaan. Your father was an Amorite and your mother was a Hittite. That's a little Monty Python there for you. As for your nativity, God speaking to Israel, on the day you were born, your navel cord, same term used in Israel's name, were not cut, nor were you washed in water to cleanse you. You were not rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling clothes. No, I pitied you to do those things for you, to have compassion on you. You were thrown out into an open field, and you were loathed on the day you were born. He's saying, when you were born, nobody even cared enough to cut the cord. They just threw you in a ditch. And God said, yet I saw you. And I wanted to adopt you. And I wanted to choose you. And I wanted to give you a new name. He says, when I passed by you and saw you struggling in your own blood, I said to you in your blood, live! Yes, live, I said! I made you thrive like a plant in the field. You grew and mature and became very beautiful. Your breasts were formed, your hair grew, and you were naked and bare. And I passed by you again and looked upon you. Indeed, your time was with a time of love. So I spread my wing over you and covered your nakedness. Yes, I swore an oath to you and entered into a covenant with you, and you became mine, says the Lord. In the same way that God adopted Jacob and gave him a new name as Israel, God adopted Israel and gave them a new name. And Paul picks up on this in Ephesians and in Romans, it says, God wants to adopt you and me and give us a new name. Yet many of us prayed a prayer years ago. We did something many, many years ago. And yet, when we prayed that prayer, somewhere along the way, we, we lost track of our name. In fact, I was in Israel a few weeks ago, and I got a chance to see uh, the location where Israel and Jacob actually wrestled. It's actually right up there on the mountains, right above the guy in the, in the hat. Right in that spot is where Israel wrestled with God. And God gave him a new name that said, I've got a new identity for you. I've got a new adoption name for you. And I want you to live out this new identity. But now as he encounters Jacob, Jacob's going to tell the Pharaoh, 130 years I am and it's been evil days. Somewhere the tragedy of life, he's lost his connection with God. So I think the question you and I need to ask, that Jacob needs to ask, is what does my life say about my name? What does the way you're living say about your name? Are you living out the name of Jacob, your old style, your old habits? Are you living out the name 
of what it means to be an adopted son of the Most High God. What is your life? If somebody tracked with you through a week, through a month, through a year, what would your life say about your name? Are you putting God on display? Are you putting you on display? Are you putting God on display? Are you putting dysfunction on display? Jacob had a decision to make to say, I've spent years as a deceiver. And God, I want to start living out the new, beautiful name you gave to me. But God's not finished there. God says, hey, I want to have a faith reunion with you. But as I do something in you, it's going to spill over into your family. I want you to have a family reunion. Next slide. In the family reunion, we find out that confession brings unity. Now, to me, this is very, very cool. Jacob arose from Beersheba. Say, God, I want to live out this name that you gave me. And the sons of Israel carried their father Jacob. So they got Jacob with them. They got the little ones with them. They got their wives with them. They got the carts that Pharaoh sent to carry their stuff with them. And they took their livestock and their goods, which they had acquired in the land of Canaan. And they went to Egypt. And they get to Egypt. Jacob and all his descendants who were with him. So it's Jacob and kids, grandkids, it mentions specifically his sons, his son's sons, his daughters, his son's daughters, all the descendants he brought with him to Egypt. And now let's listen into the conversation. Where are we going? To see Joseph. I thought Joseph is dead. Yeah, not so much. All of a sudden, this family secret that had been saturating the whole family for 22 years has to come out. They've got to know where they're going and why they're going there. And this secret and this lie that the brothers had sold one of their family members into slavery and he had chosen to not only forgive them, to provide for them, is just being unleashed through the family. Yeah, let me tell you what Dad really did. Let me tell you what I did to your uncle. Let me tell you what happened. Let me tell you how God's working in the midst of it. Let me tell you that he was willing to forgive us. And all of a sudden, there's confession occurring in the family. And that confession is impacting everybody as this family secret and the lies and the mistrust is is getting dispelled by the light of truth. God is allowing confession to bring unity in the family as they travel together to be part of what God's going to do. See, this is God's tool to bring unity in your family, in your marriage, is confession. When we confess, that's the only tool he's given us to bring reconciliation. Yet many of us, we don't use that tool. Friday night, we had a Halloween party over at our house. And so afterwards, we got done trick-or-treating, and we did a little game of questions. So we, I got this book of 100,001 questions. He called a number, and we went around asking questions. Came to my son, Javen, and the question was something like, what did your, your parents do in the past that uh, has impacted you today? And so we're all laughing, having a good time. And he's like, well, when I was real young, my dad, uh, I didn't really talk real articulately on the phone. So my dad used to call me mumbler. And so today I'm really loud because I don't want to be known as the mumbler. <laughs> and the fun was over for a moment. <laughs> then we went on to the rest of the game. And so I sat down with him last night. I said, hey, can I talk to you for a minute? He said, sure. I said, man, I want to talk about that. So I remember saying that once or twice and sort of jokingly. But it sounds like that really, you've been thinking about that's 10 years ago, buddy. And I want you to know that I, I heard you say that. I, I took it very seriously. He said, well, thanks, Dad. I said, I want you to know I am sorry. If I demeaned you in any way, I'm sorry if I wasn't sensitive to the fact that that was, was demoralizing you. I was wrong in not being sensitive. I was wrong in how I said that. I, I, I would like to ask your forgiveness. And he said, I forgive you. I said, now, is there anything else that I've done that I don't know about? Because <laughs> we, we just talked about this when we saw the movie The Judge last week, that Dad's 
Dad's unintentionally done some things to screw you up. And I want you to know that any time you, you, you come across one of these, please come tell me. And I'll, I'll be the first to own it and, and to give you the gift of, of at least me admitting I was wrong. And so we had this great moment. And just remind me again that confession, asking for forgiveness, is a way that God uses to, to heal hurts in other people, to bring humility into your own life. Confession is how God creates family reunions. And we're humble enough to admit what we've done wrong. It's powerful. And that's what God wants for us to do. So he continues. So all the family, after this time of confession, is moving toward uh, Egypt. Next slide. And keep in mind, the audience reading the five books of, of uh, the Pentateuch are Moses' um, followers. Remember, Moses is coming out of Egypt. Uh, they've, they've come out to get the Ten Commandments, and God has given Moses these first five books of the Bible. So the first... His audience really is not the people back in Genesis. His audience is those who've come out of the Exodus. And they're reading this like a soap opera. Who's the Messiah going to be? Oh my goodness, is it Judah? Oh, Judah's not doing so well. Is it going to be Simeon? Oh, he's in jail. Oh my goodness, where's the Messiah going to come? Because they don't know yet. They don't know the end of the story. But all the tribes are represented as they're reading the book of Genesis as Moses is. And they're saying, oh, oh, that's our tribe. Oh, that's me. That's me. So as they're reading through, I won't give you all the names. But they're reading through how God called each one of these tribes by name to come to Egypt. Reuben and Simeon and Judah and Levi and Zebulun and Gad and Asher. Next slide. And Zilpah and Rachel and Joseph and Benjamin and Dan and Nephali and Bilhah. Sixty-six persons in all. And including Joseph's family, there were seventy. And as the folks are listening, they're like, yeah, yeah, look, that's our story. That's what God did in our family. Wow, we had some bad moments in our family. But God worked in the midst of it. Wow, we had some dysfunction in the past. But God worked in the midst of it. In fact, God worked in the midst of our 400 years of bondage. And if God worked in the midst of all of that, man, we can trust God as we head out into the unknown of this desert. Maybe God wants to do something with our giant family. We've got 500,000, 2 million people in the family now. Look how God has worked in the midst of difficulty. Let's trust Him in the future. And let's take seriously those termites in our life, bitterness and secrets and favoritism that destroyed and wasted away so many years of our family's past. Let's take those termites seriously. See, what many of us do, we have some stronghold, the Bible calls them, some stronghold, some habit, some issue, some bitterness, some unforgiveness, and, and we store it up in the basement of our lives. And, and we hide it. And it stays there for Joseph's family 20 years. And yet the termites that eat away at your faith, your family, and your future get attracted to these strongholds. I'll give you an example. When I was, uh, I think I was 22, I had a, next door, uh, a guy in our small group who wanted us to move, help him move for the third time. And I said, listen, this is it. I'll help you, I'll help you move from one apartment then to the next apartment. This is your first house. I'm done after this. You've got to hire somebody. So we, we are moving boxes, and I grab this box, and it's just so heavy. I'm like, oh, my goodness, what's in here? Don't worry about it. Oh, my goodness, where does it go? Downstairs. I go downstairs, unfinished basement, gigantic thing. He has me set the box in the middle of the room. So I go back up. Another box, identical weight, identical size. Oh, my goodness, where does this one go? Basement. Five boxes later, boom, boom. All identical weight, all identical size, in the middle of the basement room, sitting there. I said, what is in this thing anyway? He says, well, I have the whole collection of the National Geographics. 
I remember moving this last time to your apartment. You haven't opened these since last time. Why is this here? I, I got on a marker. I started writing on it. Things we should have thrown away is what I wrote on the boxes. So six months go by. It's sitting there in his basement. I didn't think much about it. We showed up uh, for a volleyball small group party. I said, hey, what's going on? How's the new house working out? He goes, oh, it's working good, but I got termites. I said, oh, no, not termites. I said, I've heard that serious. We don't own a house yet, but that sounds a big deal. He's like, well, the good news is they haven't got into the walls yet. I said, what'd they do? He goes, well, I don't know how it happened. But they crawled across the concrete floor, and they found those boxes of those National Geographic. And they traced each other, and they ate straight through from the bottom up all the National Geographic. And he's really sad about this. And I'm like, praise God! Oh, my goodness! There's an answer to prayer. And I opened the box up, and sure enough, they got eaten away from this. I'm like, oh, this is wonderful. I'm so sorry for you. Ha-ha! And that's what many of us do, though. We got some bitterness, some habit, some deceptive practice, some greed, some hoarding. And we got this thing stuffed in the basement of our life. And termites get attracted to this stronghold. They begin to eat away at our family, eat away at our faith. And God says, why don't we deal with this junk? Things we should have thrown away. Deal with it. Confess it. Work with it. In fact, one of the things in the Bible that says, uh, God says usually leads to us falling away from God that attracts these termites is idolatry. You've probably heard the mark of the beast, you know, 666. Everybody's always wondering about what's going to be implanted in your arm. That number comes actually from the book of Kings and the book of Chronicles. You have a slide, you can put it up. Right before Solomon, in chapter 11 of Kings, falls into all of his immorality and gets a kingdom lost, he starts collecting money for himself. And guess how many pieces of gold he has? 666 talents of gold. Second Chronicles 9.13, the priests give their commentary on it and say, yep, right before he went for his fall, right before he fell apart, right before he got into getting away from God, he had 666 talents of gold. He could have just had one more and he would have been safe. Or one less and he would have been safe, right? But the idea of the mark of the beast is when we begin to put our hearts into something besides God. And one of the major culprits or, or challenges that we have is that money becomes our God. It becomes the mark of the beast. It sets us up for immorality. It sets us up for idolatry. It sets us up to not have the faith God has for us. And if we want to have that family reunion, it begins by saying, I want God first in my life. And I want to deal with whatever strongholds I have in my life that are keeping me from that. The third reunion that he describes is not a family reunion, but it's a, faith, a future reunion. Imagine after all the things that have happened to Jacob and his family, he must be thinking to himself, oh, God is done with me. My family's a disaster. It's like, you know, Jerry Springer show kind of disaster, the stuff that we've done. God, it's no wonder I wanted to be my father's faith. I have screwed it all up. Yet look what God says to him. He sent Judah before him to Joseph. So this is Jacob's. He's the he. So Jacob sent Judah before him to Joseph to point out before him the way to Goshen. I'm going to read that again. This is one of the most significant Bible verses in Genesis. I'm going to read it again, see if you can see why. He, Jacob, sent Judah before him to Joseph to point out before him the way to Goshen. You didn't get it? This is the first time ever recorded a man stopped to ask directions. It's right here in the Bible, in Genesis 46. And Judah gives him directions to Goshen. And they came to the land of Goshen. And Joseph made ready his chariot and went up to Goshen to meet his father Israel. Now remember, they haven't seen each other for 22 years. 
You can imagine they have been praying, wishing, hoping, dreaming of this day. And I love these words. So Joseph comes on his chariot. He presented himself to his dad. And he fell on his neck and wept. And he wept on his neck a good while. I bet it was a good while. Oh, son, I thought you were dead. Oh, Dad, I never thought I'd see you again. Oh, I dreamed of this day. Oh, what a God we serve that would allow me to see you before I die. I guess what Israel says. He says, now let me die since I have seen your face and you are still alive. Mm. And God brings hope to this father's grief. 130 years old. God says, I still got a plan for you. I still got a future for you. And I want you to rub the hope into your grief of 22 years. Because your son that you thought was dead and was found to be alive is the hope that gives you the hope in the midst of grief. And the same way Jesus is the ultimate Joseph who died literally and came back to life literally. And Thessalonians tells us that if you have grief, if you've lost someone, if this is the first Thanksgiving season or Christmas season that someone's missing at the dinner table, you can do the same thing. You can rub the hope that Jesus Christ raised himself from the dead and he will raise who you lost from the dead if they put their faith in him. You can rub that hope into your grief. You can have sorrow, but in the midst of sorrow, you can have hope too. And God says that hope and the grief is going to set you up, your family, for a future I have planned for you. In fact, I want to take you to Goshen. I'll show you a map where Goshen is. Doug talked a little bit last week. Up in the northern section there of Egypt is Goshen. That's where God is going to put his people. And he's going to put them up in this location together to keep them from idolatry, to keep them holy, to keep them from, from intermarrying with people of other religions and giving in to all that idolatry. So he has a plan. God has a plan. But Joseph has a plan to keep them up in Goshen. Because I was in Israel and Turkey, uh, Doug actually delivered next chapter's message last week. So you know a little bit where it's going. But let me tell you about the, pa- the story he tells his brothers to prepare them for this future they're going to have up in Goshen. Next slide. Joseph turns to his brothers and to those of his father's household and says, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and say to him, he says, here's my speech. Here's what I'm going to tell Pharaoh. Now, keep in mind, in Egypt, there was a caste system. And up here was like, you know, you're Pharaoh, you're the, the, the upper class, the, the upper, upper class. Then there's the upper middle class, middle class. And go down, 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 slave, 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 push, shepherds. And he knows that if he can get the Pharaoh to realize these guys are shepherds, they will be pushed out and protected from immorality and pushed out and protected from, from giving into idolatry. So he says that they're shepherds four different ways. It's hilarious. He wants to make sure that Pharaoh knows it. Look what he says. My brothers, here's what I'm going to say to Pharaoh. Verse 32. The men are shepherds. Their occupation has been to feed livestock. That's what shepherds do. He says it again. They have brought their flocks, their herds, and all that they have. So in four different ways, he wants to make sure the Pharaoh knows that they are bringing smelly sheep. He might as well say, hey, my dad's coming, he's got a donkey, he's got a big bumper sticker, and it says, sheep happens. <laughs> because that's what's coming to Egypt, stinky, smelly sheep. And then he tells them, when Pharaoh asks you what's your occupation, you're supposed to say to him, your servant's occupation has been with livestock, 
from our youth. It's not a temporary job. It's not a holiday job. We've always been doing this. Both we and all of our fathers did it. We've been stinking for generations, let me tell you. And you may dwell in the land of Goshen. This plan is going to lead us to get the best land up in Goshen. Because shepherding is an abomination to the Egyptians. And he knows... If it was in modern day, it'd be like showing up to the Jimmy Fallon show and saying, hey, we got a bunch of sheep. And Pharaoh says, ew, ew, shepherds, ew, just get out of here, get out of here, get out of here. And he scoos them off and he pushes them up to Goshen. And that's what happens. And God protects their future by putting them in a place where he is going to set them up for an incredible plan he has for their life. And as you reflect on this, I think what's amazing to me is what an expert God is in using the manure of sheep. All of the lies, all of the deceit, all of the secrets, all of the manipulation that's gone on in Jacob's family. And yet here's what God says. I love to put my hands in the manure of people's life. And I take that manure and I spread it around and I fertilize your life for new growth. Where other people say it's an abomination, they push you into a corner. God says, no, I'm ready to get my hands dirty. I want to reach into the manure and I'm going to use even the shepherding you had in this caste system society. And I'm going to use this to grow you. I'm going to use this to protect you. I'm going to use this to tell you that at 130 years old, I'm not done with you. I've got an incredible plan for your life, Joseph and Jacob. I want to work with you. Despite the pain, despite the shame, despite the difficulties, trust me. To have a faith reunion, yes. To have a family reunion, sure. But I've got a future for you still at 130 years if you'll engage with me. Three reunions. What might those reunions mean for you and I as our takeaway today? Maybe it's the faith for you is you need to start taking a, a real look in the mirror and say, what does my life say about my name? Am I living out this name that God gave me to put him on display? Man, no. I, I need to have a, a faith reunion with God. Maybe today you need to have some confession with God and look at some secrets in your own life. Maybe for some of you, there's, a, there's some bitterness between you and somebody in your family. And you, God's calling you. He's nudging you. He's speaking to you to have a, a family reunion. And part of that's going to be you being humble enough to say, God, I want to put myself under your plan and your tool. I'm going to admit where I'm wrong. Or maybe it's a future reunion. You say, oh, some things have happened. And I just have lost faith in God because of some disappointments in my life. And some things have happened and some grief in my life. And God says, let me be with you. I can work through the pain. I can bring hope into the grief. I am the God who specializes in working in these very circumstances. But the ball's in our court. God is waiting to wrap his arms around us. To give us a new start and untangle us from lies. But we've got to be the first to raise our hands and say, God, I'm crying out to Jesus to work through this pain. Let's pray. Father, thank you for being such a good God. Thank you for being such a pain specialist. And we ask that you reach down to each heart. And during the song, Father, we give your Holy Spirit permission to move in our hearts and to put your finger on whatever area of pain we need to call out to you on. In Jesus' name. God, we thank you this morning that we can hold on to you, that you'll never let us go. In every life circumstance, God, that you are right with us.
through our grief, through our triumph. And we commit, God, to hold on to you because you held on for us. It's in your name that we all pray this morning. Amen. Amen. Well, it has been so good to have you all with us here this morning. If you came prepared to give, you can do so in the boxes outside of the doors. And we look forward to seeing you next week as we continue our series on Joseph. Have a great weekend.